Amen. You would grab your Bibles as you grab your seat and open with me to Mark chapter 1. This morning we're looking at verses 29 through 39. Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> when Meg and I were the student ministry team at the church in Louisiana, I became somewhat notorious for distracted driving. And what I mean by that is nothing dangerous. I didn't ever hit any body or anything. Um, but instead, we went on a lot of road trips with the youth group, right? You go to camp, you go to fall retreat, you go to concerts, you go to all kinds of things. And so our practice was we'd rent 15 passenger vans, sometimes two, three, four, five, and then you have a caravan going to the place. That's the mission. That's the goal. We're going to camp. Okay. Meg is really good about kind of like figuring out how to get around a place based off of how she's been there before, but I'm better at following a map, knowing how to understand a map. And so in the beginning, the practice was we've never been to these places. So Shan, you'll lead the caravan. I felt pretty confident in being able to follow a map. Okay. Well, you're only so good at following a map as you are at paying attention to the map. And the problem was that oftentimes I would get distracted. We we're playing a, you know, a good road trip game or we're singing a good road trip song, which is, of course, the best one is Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Um, or I'm telling a story to make the students laugh, and I'm, I'm really into it, and I just stop paying attention to the map, and I completely miss a turn. I miss the exit. We keep going. Meg's like honking at me from the van behind me like, come on, dummy, pay attention. So this happened enough times that I lost my position as the lead of the caravan, uh, I got I got demoted to the back of the line, which is still kind of an important role. You know, you're supposed to you're supposed to make sure we don't lose anybody, keep everybody together, right? But really, what Meg was saying was, all you have to do is follow the white van. Okay, you don't really have to pay attention; just follow the white van. Well, it happened a couple times, maybe that I ended up following the wrong white van. Um, <laughs> Because I was telling a story or singing a song, and uh, even to the point where one time it was a it was a white van, but it had a roof rack and it had a, like a ladder on top. It was clearly like a work van, and makes like that's the van you followed. And so I got demoted again to the middle of the caravan, <laughs> meaning they were like, just don't let Shan get lost. Uh, so much so that Meg made this giant green neon poster and put it in the back window and said, Shan, follow this van. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, here's the issue with being distracted. Is it keeps you from accomplishing the mission. The mission was to make it to camp or to the fall retreat, right? <clears throat> and these good things that I was doing, entertaining the students, telling a story... Those are good and important things to do. As a youth pastor, you're supposed to build a relationship with the student ministry, right? With the, with the children. <clears throat> Excuse me. But sometimes we can get distracted even by good things which keep us from accomplishing the mission. And sometimes those are the more dis dangerous things to be distracted by. Because from the outside looking in, you might still think you're being successful because you are doing good things. But if you're not accomplishing the mission, then you've, you've messed up. You've missed it. So it really didn't matter how many times I made the students laugh with a funny story. It didn't matter how many good songs we sang if we never actually made it to camp. If we never actually made it to the fall retreat. That was the mission. And being distracted keeps you from accomplishing the mission. Well, in the text that we're studying this morning, Jesus is wrestling with a similar distraction. 
He is accomplishing good things, but he's going through this process of discernment of trying to figure out how to balance those good things with the actual mission that he was sent on. And he did not fall into this trap that sometimes we fall into, which is that the good things keep us from accomplishing the mission. So you'll remember that we're pretty early here in Jesus' ministry. We've already seen some amazing things, though. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, identifying him as the Messiah. He has spoken and preached with authority and with power. He then demonstrated that power by casting a demon out of this man in the middle of a worship service. Pretty cool, pretty amazing. And that's where we pick up, actually, in the same day. As we look at verse 29, it says, Immediately he left the synagogue. So this is picking up the story where we left off. This is after worship is over, after this man has been, the demon has been cast out of this man. But what we saw in verse 28 was that word began to spread about Jesus. I mean, if that happened in a worship service, you'd probably go tell somebody, right? It's pretty amazing. And so word begins to spread so much so that his fame is going all throughout the city and all throughout the region. So let's keep reading. Verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So they're, they're going to go get some some Sunday dinner with with the with the buds and with the family verse 30 now simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her so we don't have enough information here to know exactly in what way simon's mother-in-law was sick but we know it's serious enough that she's not able to fulfill her role and her responsibility here of being hostess And so, I mean, we also know just from the ancient world that there wasn't really much medical technology at all. So it didn't take too much of an illness to kill somebody. So supposedly this is pretty important. This is pretty serious. And this verse kind of leads us to ask a question. Like if this is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus, you're reading the Gospel of Mark for the very first time. You don't have anything else that you know about him. Up to this point, you have seen Jesus fill this kingly role. He comes, he says, because I'm here, the kingdom of God is growing. And he speaks with power and he speaks with authority. So we see him fulfilling the role that he's supposed to fulfill, but we don't really know who he is personally yet. We don't know his character, his personality. We don't know his heart. And so we kind of wonder... If you don't know, we kind of wonder, well, what is he going to do here? Simon's mother-in-law is sick. How is he going to respond? Verse 31. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. And so we see here, we begin to understand Jesus' character by seeing his compassion for Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He goes... And he heals her. He is not a detached, removed king who does not care about the people who are in his kingdom. He cares about them. We see him take her by the hand and and lift her up. This phrase in the original language, let's say you've read through the Gospel of Mark and now you're rereading it. You would catch this phrase because this is the same phrase used to talk about Jesus' resurrection. That he was lifted up, raised up from the dead. And so the careful rereader is going, okay, Mark here is already giving us a glimpse into Jesus' resurrection power in the way that he lifts up 
Simon Peter's mother-in-law. For Mark's original audience who were not Jewish, what Jesus did here would have been uh, stood in contrast to what they would have expected. Because in the Greco-Roman world, typically if someone was a, a spiritual leader of some kind and they're going to try to perform a miracle, what they're going to do is they're going to work themselves up into this big frenzy. And they're going to be trying to cast spells or use convocations or calling on outside power to come and to do this miraculous thing. But Jesus doesn't go to all that drama, and he doesn't look to any outside power. Instead, he knows that he simply has a taker by the hand, and his power will heal her. He's so confident in that that he basically says, by the time I get you to your feet, I already know you're going to be healed. And so Jesus does not look to outside power. Instead, he relies on the power that is innately within him because he is God in the flesh. And then we see Simon Peter's mother-in-law begin to serve them. This is the rightful and, uh, response to anyone who has had a genuine encounter with Jesus. Which is that he heals you, what else would you do but serve him? And I hope you understand the fact that he has provided the way to heal your soul. The fact that he has reconciled you to God through his willing death on the cross, this is no less of a miracle than when he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law physically. And so we should, in the same way, stand to our feet and begin to serve him. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So why here at sundown? Well, because you remember it was Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath began Friday at sundown and ended Saturday at sundown. And during the Sabbath, they're not supposed to travel. So what that means is word has been traveling about Jesus during this time since he has cast out the demon that morning. And as soon as they can, as soon as sundown hits, they begin to flood to his house, bringing him all who are sick or oppressed by demons. Verse 33. And the whole city gathered together at the door. Verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases <clears throat> and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this is an interesting thing that we're going to see repeated throughout the Gospel of Mark. And biblical scholars like to describe this theme as the messianic secret. And what that simply means is that Jesus is very careful and intentional about how and when he reveals himself as the Messiah. And for this reason, he does not allow the demons to essentially give away the secret. Well, why is it a, a secret? For That's not a great term. But why is he careful about when and how he reveals himself as the Messiah? Well, because he knows ultimately what's going to happen when he fully reveals who he is. That the religious leaders of the day are going to reject him. You are not the son of God. You're not the, the, the figure from Daniel 7, the son of man. You're not um, the savior, the one who can forgive sins. And, and he's going to go to the cross when that is fully revealed. So he's careful about how he reveals that, not because he's afraid of going to the cross, but because he is going to the cross willingly when he decides to go. And so we'll see this several times throughout the Gospel of Mark. But what we, else we see in this passage is that Jesus didn't just heal his disciples' mother. 
Instead, he was willing to heal all who gathered there that evening. He was willing to cast out demons. And so once again, we see the heart of Jesus, that he's not just a king who wants people to submit and surrender to his power, but he's a king who uses his power for the good of his people, to heal them, to cast out demons, to defeat their great enemy. He does this even at the risk of exposing himself before he's fully ready to reveal who he is. It's like almost as if he can't help himself. He has compassion for these people and he acts based upon this compassion. He's the creator of all things and he looks and he sees his creation broken and it breaks his heart and he uses his power to set things right again. He looks at these people who are broken and it breaks his heart and he uses his power to heal them. And what we see is that he doesn't just hold and fulfill the role of king. But also we see here that he has a heart of compassion for his people. We see that Jesus ministered to people's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. That Jesus ministered to people's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. We see the physical here in the healings. Obviously, Peter's mother-in-law and the crowd there. But we also know how emotionally painful it is whenever you are going through a sickness or someone you love is going through some kind of physical illness. And, and we see Jesus care for that issue as well. And then lastly, their spiritual needs. They are being attacked by Satan. And he uses his power to protect them from the evil one. And he ministers to them holistically. Which is needed. As we think back to Genesis chapter 3, and we think about the curses that flow from sin, sin has a holistic attack against us and against our world. Think back to what God described, the consequences of sin. That there would be enmity between the man and the serpent, between man and Satan. That there would be a spiritual attack We see that there would be strife between man and the woman, that there would be relational and emotional damage because of sin, that there would be a a striving continuously between man and the earth because even the earth is damaged and broken because of sin, that it would be hard work to to get what we need out of the earth and that ultimately at the end of our lives, from dust we were made and from dust we will return because of our sin. And so Jesus, recognizing this holistic attack against us and our lives and our world, he ministers to us in this holistic way. His compassion is for all of us and all of who we are. He's not just wanting us to submit to his power. He's wanting to meet our needs individually, personally, where we are and what we need. As I think about Jesus' heart of compassion I think one of the best examples can be seen in John chapter 11, which is the story, the account of when Jesus goes essentially to his friend's funeral. He's heard word that his friend Lazarus is very sick. And he gets there and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And he looks around at the brokenness around him. He sees the family, of course, weeping. And what does Jesus do? Famously, the shortest verse in the whole New Testament, John eleven thirty five, says, Jesus wept. Now, at first glance, this is not surprising. That's what you do at funerals, right? 
But consider this. On the way to the funeral, Jesus told his disciples, basically, watch and see what God's going to do. He has a purpose in this. Meaning, Jesus comes to Lazarus' funeral knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And that makes us ask that question again. Jesus, you know you're about to raise Lazarus from the dead. You're about to call him out of the tomb. Why are you weeping? It's because he looks around at the hurt and the brokenness around him. He sees how Lazarus' family, how their hearts were broken, and he couldn't help but to hurt for them as well. The Bible tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that he is close to the crushed in spirit. That when we hurt, God hurts with us because that's who he is. That he has compassion for us because that's the kind of king that he is. That this is what makes him such a good high priest. As he's described in Hebrews chapter 4. That he knows what it's like to be man. That he is both fully God and fully man. And he knows what it's like to go through heartbreak. And so he sympathizes for us in our weaknesses. And what this means is that we see Jesus' compassion. And it is not just something that we rejoice in. But it is an example that we are required to follow. That when Jesus called to his disciples and he said, come and follow me. He was not telling them Hey, walk how I walk. He was saying that. He's not saying only walk how I walk. He was not only saying talk how I talk. He was also saying love how I love. Have compassion for those whom I have compassion for. This is the example that Jesus set for us. One of ministering to people's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. And this is the example that we see the early church living up to. As we look at historical documents from the 100s and the 200s AD, we see that the early church had a reputation for many different things. One of them was this, that in the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was completely socially acceptable that this is how they essentially accomplished what we call abortion today. They didn't have the medical way to do it that we have it. So it was completely socially acceptable that if you had a child and, and if in any way that you thought that they were deficient or if you just didn't want them, you were allowed to just take them out to the trash heap and just leave them on the trash heap to let them die there. And the early church was known for searching through the trash heaps for these children to rescue them. Why? Because God's heart was breaking that his creation was being treated in that way. And so the church's heart was breaking that his creation was being treated that way. This was so common that there was a term for it. These children that were rescued in this way, they were called foundlings, meaning they had been found and rescued. And this is what the church was known for, for having compassion in the way that Jesus had compassion. And this is what our church should be known for, having compassion in the way that Jesus has compassion. That our programs should reflect Jesus' heart. Our budget should reflect Jesus' heart. How we spend our time should reflect Jesus' heart, which means our programs, our budget, and our time should all be ministering to people's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. That's what it means to have Christ's heart. 
to be compassionate in the way that he is compassionate. But we opened this study this morning talking about distraction from mission. Even being distracted by good things. And what we're going to see as we go into the next verse is that Jesus is doing many, many good things. He's ministering to people in ways that are very important, but he is wrestling with something. So let's see what that wrestling is. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So there's a whole lot of details in just this one verse that give us the indication that this is not just a regular morning prayer time. That Jesus is really wrestling with something here. First of all, the indication that it was very early. How many times have you been woken up because you're anxious about something or you're wrestling with something or, you're, or God is placing something on your heart? He go, it emphasizes how early it was, meaning it's like he couldn't even sleep because he's trying to work through something. And then it describes him going to a desolate place. This is an important phrase throughout the Bible, that it's a desert place or a desolate place. And what we see is that routinely this is the place of temptation and the place of wrestling. This is the same phrase used earlier in the Gospel of Mark of where Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in the desolate place for 40 days and for 40 nights. And we see this many other examples in the Bible. Moses Being in the desert place, he comes across the burning bush. The people of God were tempted in the wilderness and they failed. That David, he gets sent out to the desolate places because Saul is trying to kill him. Example after example. And so what Mark is trying to highlight for us here is that Jesus was wrestling with something. And that is why he was there to pray. Even the word prayed here in the original language communicates an ongoing, intensive time of prayer. And so Jesus Everything from the outside appears really good. What's going on here? What's the problem? What are you wrestling with? You're healing all these people. You're a rabbi. You want people to come to you, right? And all these people are coming to you, flooding to you. So what's the problem? From the outside, it seems like everything's going pretty good. Verse 36. And Simon and those who were there with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. In the original language, this word searched is an intensive word again, meaning they weren't just like, oh, I wonder where Jesus went, but they were like desperately trying to find him. Jesus, I don't know if you get what's happening here, but there are enormous crowds looking for you. Wasn't this what we wanted? Why are you hiding away? Where are you? And after having prayed and wrestled with this, he's come to the conclusion God has led him clearly. And he answered them, verse 38, he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. This was his mission. Not to heal people, but to preach the good news. To proclaim the gospel to the world. And God has made that clear to him through this time of wrestling and apparently temptation. It should not surprise us. The Bible is clear that Jesus, it tells us, was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. And so it is not sinful to be tempted. 
It is human to be tempted. And Jesus was fully human. And he was wrestling with the temptation here, which was to be distracted by a very good thing to let his compassion overrule the actual mission that he was sent on, which was to preach the gospel. And so after the Lord guided him and directed him, that's what he did. Verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so what Jesus is wrestling with here is actually a really important principle that that provides a foundation for our church, which is this, that the son's ministry was a tool for accomplishing the father's mission. The son's ministry was a tool for accomplishing the father's mission, which is our our next sermon point this morning, if we could put it up on the screen. So here's the thing, and why this text is so important for us this morning, is oftentimes we use those terms ministry and mission somewhat synonymously, like kind of interchangeably, and they are not the same thing. They are both good and important things that the church should be doing, but if we don't understand the ways in which they are different, we can be distracted by ministry and completely miss mission. Or we can be so focused on mission that we handicap our mission because we are doing no ministry. So let me make it perfectly clear what the difference is. Ministry is when you are meeting someone's immediate needs. And mission is when we are presenting the gospel so someone can be saved and their eternal needs can be met. The ministry is when we help someone physically, emotionally, or spiritually. But mission is when we give them the gospel, which is the only way for them to be saved for all of eternity. Immediate needs versus eternal needs. And it is important to understand that distinction. Because meeting an immediate need is a good thing, an important thing, But it is not ultimately what people need. Consider this. That day, I don't even know how many people Jesus healed. It just says many. The whole city gathered. Let's say it was hundreds of people. Just throw out a number. Every single one of those people, one day, they got sick again. Even Lazarus, whom Jesus raised back to the dead, I mean, raised from the dead, back to life, He's not still walking around today. I mean, I don't know how many more years Jesus gave him, but one day Lazarus died again. And so to only meet people's immediate needs through ministry and to not meet their eternal needs through mission is to put a bullet on a band-aid, or to put a band-aid on a bullet wound. That would have been really good if I said it the right way. It's even written down. I should have said it that way. Let me try again. We'll just pretend like this is the first time, okay? To only meet people's immediate needs and to not meet their eternal need is to put a band-aid on a bullet wound. Every single person that Jesus healed, one day they died. 
And if they did not have the gospel, they would spend eternity in hell. Every single person that we have the opportunity to meet one of their immediate needs, that is a good thing that we should do. It shows the compassion in the heart of Jesus. But if we do not give them the gospel in the process, one day they will die. Regardless of how good we are at ministry. And if they do not have the gospel, they'll spend eternity in hell. And so Jesus was wrestling with this, uh, this distraction. He says, I have so much compassion for these people. And there's so much that I can do to heal them in this moment. But that's not why God sent me. Instead, my ministry is supposed to be a tool, an avenue for helping me to accomplish the mission. This is what we see Jesus doing over and over and over. He, he multiplies the bread and the fishes and he feeds thousands of people. But guess what? They're going to get hungry again tomorrow. And so he uses that ministry as an opportunity to accomplish the mission because he says, guess what? I am the bread of life. In raising Lazarus from the dead, he knew one day Lazarus would die again. And so what he did was he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we, in the same way, we have opportunities to meet people's needs and to minister to, to, to them. But we cannot fall short of presenting the gospel when those needs arise. It's really easy to fall into this trap. There's this quote that people like to attribute to Francis of Assisi, uh, which he was a monk in the 1200s, that says this, Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You've heard this, I'm sure. Here's the issue. I had to write a paper on Francis of Assisi. I read every word that he ever wrote that we still have in existence. He never said it. <laughs> uh, but here's the bigger issue. It's not biblical. It's actually in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches. Romans 10, 17 says this. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So we sometimes live under this false assumption that if I live a good Christian life, that's me preaching the gospel without even using words. And the Bible says faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is good and important that we live Christian lives that are in alignment with the gospel, but that is not how people come to faith in Jesus. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We cannot do some ministry and then feel that we have been obedient to do mission. Sometimes we fall into that trap because we've met some kind of need. We've ministered in some way. We think we've been obedient enough. But unless we present the gospel, unless we actually partner ministry with mission, we are falling short of the commission that has been, we have been sent on. Because faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. People have to hear the gospel. We have to preach the gospel. That's what Jesus said. This is why I came out. It's to preach the gospel. And so, we can become distracted from the mission. 
sometimes even by good things. But if we're going to follow Jesus' example, then we will let those good things be a tool for the mission rather than a distraction from the mission. I've been on uh, the opportunity to go on a couple international mission trips. One uh, to the Gambia, which is a little country in West Africa, completely surrounded by Senegal. We're pretty deep in the bush at this point, like little dusty villages, 50 people. But here's what I found as I went to village after village. That even though these people were living in essentially what we would describe as a mud hut, every single village had a nice, new, modern well that was powered by solar power. How did they get that? Because it was right next door to the nice, new, modern mosque. And in that moment, I became very convicted that we cannot fail to go out on mission. Because we are not the only people who can build wells. But we are the only people who have the gospel. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through the Son. Now this is not me saying don't build wells. Let's build wells. That's, that's good. That's ministry. That's following Jesus' heart of compassion. But let's not think that we have been faithful to the mission by building wells. Because faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. And people are not going to figure out the gospel just because we do nice things for them. One time I, uh, it was when Meg and I were dating, we went to a D-Now at our home church in Alabama. And the Saturday afternoon activity was, the, 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 we broke up into small groups. I was with the college group. And the youth pastor just gave us an amount of cash. And he said, Figure out how to do mission with this money. And that was it. We're like, okay, cool. So we, we, we brainstormed and we came up with this plan, which at the time was pretty creative. Now you see this all the time on TikTok where someone walks up to a stranger and just pays for their groceries at the grocery store. Um, that's what we came up with. We're going to go. We're going to pay for a stranger's groceries. Um, we pulled even more funds together. And that was our plan. We're going to use that as an opportunity to try to present the gospel. And for whatever reason, I got sent forward as the representative or whatever. We, and we found someone who we thought was a good opportunity. They seemed to be only buying necessities, buying diapers. Diapers are expensive. And so, like, this is the person we're going to help out today. So we go up and we say, hey, we're going to pay for your groceries. We swipe the card, yada, yada, yada. And we got the, expect, the, the answer that we expected, which was just amazed. And, and why would you do this? And that was the exact question we were hoping for. Because that was my opportunity to present the gospel. And for whatever reason, I chickened out. And I gave just some kind of a vague spiritual answer. Oh, we just, we just know how much God loves us, and we wanted to show the love of God to you. Which was true, but it wasn't the gospel. It wasn't an opportunity for that woman to place her faith in King Jesus and to be saved for all of eternity. We fed her for a few weeks, and Jesus wanted to feed her for eternity. 
but it was really easy to convince myself that I had been faithful to the Great Commission because I had done some ministry. But I had been distracted by a good thing and not done the greater thing. I was not faithful to the mission. So church, we will not be distracted in this way. We will partner our ministry with the Father's mission. We will use the ways that we have compassion for people as an opportunity to share the gospel. We'll not let ourselves feel like we've been fully obedient simply by loving people because that is a weak kind of love. To feed someone for two weeks and to let them go to hell is not love. said we'll have a greater love, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates for us. As we wrap up, as the band comes up, we're going to have a time of response. I want to ask one final question, though, as we're concluding. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're new to all this Jesus stuff. And I want to ask you this question. Why are you here? I hope that the many good ministries that we have here have not become a distraction to the real reason why you should be here. I'm so thankful that we have a talented praise team that leads us well in music. Like, the music is good. But if that's the reason you're here, you're missing the mission. Because Jesus, he, he doesn't want you just to be to receive some good ministry for a time. He wants you to be saved for all of eternity. He doesn't want some of your earthly needs to be met. He wants your eternal need to be met. For this to happen, you have to place your faith in him as Lord. To turn away from your sin and follow him with your life. And if you would do that, then you would receive not just ministry for a time, but you would be saved for all of eternity. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing a song of response. If you want to speak with me in the front about how Jesus can save you for all of eternity, I'd love to speak with you. Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word. As always, it both challenges us and encourages us. We're so thankful that you have a heart of compassion for us. We need your forgiveness, your grace, and your patience for us when we allow ourselves to be distracted by anything that keeps us from fulfilling your mission. God, we're thankful that someone had the courage and the obedience to speak the gospel to us because in our hearing, we came to faith. God, give us the courage and the obedience to speak the gospel. To those who need it because we know that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ God in this time of response I ask just simply for obedience courage to be obedient to whatever you would call I pray all these things in Jesus name Amen Church as you stand go ahead and move as the Holy Spirit is convicting you